Well, let's turn in our Bibles once again to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Of course, I knew when I selected the hymn that we have just sung that very few people would know it, but that's how we learn. And Gudamel, who wrote the tune that was in the Geneva Psalter, and also its first French versification, as I recall, was massacred in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. He was murdered for his Calvinistic faith. And a part of that faith is the place of the law of God in the life of the Christian. We'll be reading verse 17, but will you pray with me before we read? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Our hearts are full with praise and thanksgiving for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. But we are also grateful, Heavenly Father, that in regeneration our hearts are changed and now the law of God is being written upon our hearts. And we are being conformed to the image of thine own dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Heavenly Father, as we peer within, we confess not only sins that we have committed, but we repent of who we are by nature, fallen sinners deserving uh, the wrath of Almighty God. And that makes us seem all the greater and with with great alacrity to pray, with full thanksgiving that we are redeemed sinners who believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we pray that we, thy people, will live under the authority of the Word of God and that we would not attempt to live as laws unto ourselves. We pray for our culture, for our culture needs to hear the law of God. We pray for the use of the law in evangelism so that in the Holy Spirit's hands, many sinners would come to see themselves in need of the Redeemer, the Savior, for no one can keep this law. We have all broken it. No one can keep it to perfection. Only Christ has kept it and he paid its penalty. But Father, we also pray that now as believers, because the curse of the law has been removed in the cross of Jesus Christ, that our hearts will love the law of God. And so work within the hearts of all of us this morning as we need to be conformed to Christ's image, that the Spirit will do that work magnificently and wonderfully in our hearts that each of us needs. For thou art the God who knows every heart exhaustively what we need and so meet that need we pray as the word of God is proclaimed and continue to move us on as believers to our heavenly home these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ the only mediator between God and man amen will you now take your copy of God's word and stand as we read Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 this is the word of the lord you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey 
or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, this text has been rightly translated. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's wife or his male slave, his female slave, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to him. Because covetousness is all about inordinate desire. The deeds of adultery, stealing, murder that we have seen condemned by God's law in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment exposes the heart that is behind the deeds. It shows us the relationship between, between our covetousness and the first commandment, idolatry. It shows us what drives our idolatry, a covetous heart. In addition to the Ten Commandments, forbidding the actual uh, commission of those things that are considered by God covetous, and we should as well, what is also forbidden are the steps that we might take to acquire the thing coveted, or, or the heart longing, the mental program that we can go through in desiring something that does not belong to us. So let's begin with this. First of all, what is forbidden in this final commandment in the Ten Commandments? What is forbidden? That's first. What is forbidden? What is forbidden is setting our desire on our neighbor's house, wife, servants, or whatever is our neighbor's. God does not condemn possessing things, even nice things. God condemns covetous desire for things or people. And also, it condemns the premeditation involved in wanting it, whether or not the premeditation comes to fruition. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Desiring your neighbor's wife, it can happen on a sudden. You look and then you desire. It can work the other way as well, a husband. But you look and desire and then you're eaten up with meditation on some other woman. Your mind begins to think what it would be like to be with this woman. You come to admire her above your wife. After all, your wife's faults are apparent to you, but you only see this woman acting, dressing, smelling her best. You've never had a, a cross word with her. You begin to make plans in your mind to have her as your own. And it may or may not come to fruition, but it will show. Sin always shows. Your wife knows something is wrong. You no longer show her the attention that you once showed her. It's forced at best, and your family suffers because you're not there for them mentally, and perhaps not even physically. And there is unaccounted for time away from the family, either mentally or physically. Thoughts of this other woman completely consume your waking and your sleeping hours. Your time with the Lord is no longer the sweet time that it once was. It is perfunctory. Or maybe your time with the Lord privately just drops off altogether. You begin to develop a hard heart about the things of God. You come to worship perhaps, or maybe you begin to skip. And when the word is preached and you're in public worship, you, you, you just don't have the delight in it that you once 
had. You're filled with tension and dissatisfaction, and it shows in your relationships. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you become cross, or you say things that, that are contrary to God's word and way and his law. And it can work that way also with things that you might want to possess. It's a mental process. You see, covetousness, people of God, is about consumption. It is not about giving. It is not about love. It is about lust. Not all desire is wrong. It's not wrong for you desire to sleep when, you, when you're sleepy or to, to eat when you're hungry. Uh, the sexual desire is a God-given desire. It is God's gift. It's not wrong to want a better job. Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Proverbs are, are filled with references to working hard and enjoying the fruit of your labor. But here's the point. Good desires are satisfied with Christ, in fellowship with Christ, satisfied in His way, in His timing, His desires for us become the consuming desire of our own heart. Wanting things at the expense of others, or at the expense of what God has revealed, or at the expense of His law, this is what eats up the heart. Christians must realize that we have we have more than what is sufficient in Christ, whether we prosper in the things of this world or whether we do not prosper in the things of this world, a godly heart receives the word of God and then synchronizes the outward and the inner life. And this is one of the reasons that we are often so afraid to ask the Lord to change us because we know that if our hearts change, then our outward behavior also will change. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. And so the opposite of a covetous heart is a heart that delights so in the Lord that we actually desire the things that God wants us to have, and so he gives to us the desires of our hearts because our desire, desires are now the desires that God would have for us. Now I ask you, is the Holy Spirit working within your heart on some issue of covetousness even as the word is preached? It may relate to some woman or some man or some thing, or you know what that thing is. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this thing must go. You must believe, you must repent, there must be change. That leads us to the second thing we want to see. What are the characteristics of a covetous heart? The characteristics of a heart that that longs inordinately for those things that do not belong to him? What are heart characteristics that show that we are consumed with inordinate desire, with covetousness? Well, here again, I reflect the Puritans and especially Thomas Watson because they were such soul doctors, were they not? First of all, the characteristic of a covetous heart is an insatiable desire for the world and for its goods. In Proverbs chapter 30, I don't know if you know this passage or would remember it. You might want to turn there. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, the proverb reads, The leech has two daughters, give and give, they cry. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, 
the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. And so what this little proverb is about is covetousness that says, give, give, and it's never satisfied, never enough. And to read that proverb and to see the reference to Sheol, to death, to the grave, to hell, is that not sobering? Or is your heart so bent on acquiring the world that eternal things just have no effect upon you? And that's because we are outside of Christ, dead in trespasses and sins. There are two Greek words that are used for covetousness. Pleonexia, which means insatiable desire, and philarguria, which is inordinate love for the world. That's it. You see, it's love for the world, which is a lustful heart. But another characteristic of a covetous heart is when our thoughts are just taken up with the world. A Christian's thoughts are more and more heavenward. A worldly man's thoughts are with his shop or with the game continually. Very rarely is there a thought about a serious thing or about the things of the Lord and then not savingly. A covetous heart, you see, a man may be said to be covetous when he takes more pains for getting earth than getting heaven. So this is the man who will take many a weary step in order to prosper in this world, but not for heaven. He'll sit through hours of ball games, but complains if on the Sabbath, which is the day for worshiping God in particular, God is worshiped a little longer than usual. So he hunts for the world, says Watson. He hunts for the world. He wishes only for heaven. Most of all, this man's discourse is about the world. He talks about the world incessantly, continually. John 3:31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Our words, you see, are mirrors of our hearts. And when we're constantly talking about the world and the things of this world, it shows where our hearts are. A man also is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that love of them, he will part with heavenly things in order to get worldly things. So it is when Christ said to the rich young man, sell all, come and follow me, that the rich young man went away sorrowfully. If you would rather part with Christ in a good conscience than your plan, gaining your things, you're eaten up with covetousness. A man is given to covetousness when he overloads himself with worldly business. Uh, he's so busy, he has no time for communion with God. I wonder if that's someone, someone here. You're just eaten up with doing, 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 and you have no time for God. He's covetous that will use all sorts of means to obtain the world, even breaking God's law to get it. He will wrong someone. He will defraud someone. Hosea 11.7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances. And so what the Lord Jesus says sums it up for us, as we heard in our scripture reading this morning from Luke 12, take heed and beware of covetousness, because covetousness pollutes the soul. It is a subtle sin. It's not always discerned by covetous people that they are covetous. It is a dangerous sin. Covetousness, said the Puritan, hinders the efficacy of the word preached. 
We preach to men to get their hearts in heaven, but where covetousness is predominant, it chains them to earth. You may as well bid an elephant fly in the air as a covetous man live by faith. It is a mother sin. That is to say, it begets other sins. It is a sin that is dishonorable to religion, that is to the true Christian faith. Seekest thou great things, seek them not. That is not for ourselves, but seek those things that are for God's glory rather than for our own. It exposes us also to God's abhorrence. Psalm 10.3, the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. It precipitates men to ruin and shuts them out of heaven. Since I mentioned Watson, I'm going to take time to read this paragraph from this uh, mighty Puritan. He says, a covetous man is like a bee that gets into a barrel of honey and there drowns itself. As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. I have read of some inhabitants near Athens who, living in a very dry and barren island, took much pains to draw a river to the island to water it and make it fruitful. But when they had opened the passages and brought the river to it, the water broke in with such force that it drowned the land and all the people in it. This is an emblem of a covetous man who labors to draw riches to him, and at last they come in such abundance that they drown him in perdition. How many to build up an estate pull down their souls, O oh, flee from covetousness. Covetousness involves steps, mental steps, steps in the heart. Reformed ethicists have dwelt on this theme, men like Dalma and others. You see, we may first be caught off guard by this immoral desire, and then we're titillated. And then we begin to nurse the desire instead of mortifying it and living out of the resurrection of Christ, vivifying. We allow it space in our minds. We ruminate upon it. We nurse the desire for whatever that thing or person may be in our souls. And then we surrender our wills to the desire. And then we develop a plan to fulfill the desire, and then the desire shows in the deed. Do you know the old saying that the thought is the father of the deed? Well, covetousness certainly fits that. Take example, King David. This was among the several examples that came to my mind, Eve and Eden, uh, Achan and Joshua 7, the rich fool in Luke 12, but David. Let me point out that already David had opened his heart to covetousness. He had opened his heart to disobedience. His relationship with the Lord was already on the skids. We see this in one way because he was not fulfilling his duty as king to be at war with his men. You remember the passage, I'm sure. But then as he was disobedient in that, it was then that he saw Bathsheba. And he was taken off guard. And immediately he began to nurse the desire for Bathsheba. He surrendered his will to that desire. 
brought her unto himself, and so he developed a plan to fulfill it, and it was fulfilled, and then he committed adultery, and eventually he committed murder in order to do the impossible, which was to hide his sin, because sin will out, it will not be hidden. I ask, will you guard your heart? If you're a believer, you have, through Christ Jesus our Lord, all that is necessary to guard the heart. Will you guard your heart? Is someone now in the midst of us with such, such sinful, boiling desire that it has just, just eaten you up, it's taken you over? Well, that leads me to the third thing. What do I do? What do I do? Uh, if indeed you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's believers to whom I have been primarily addressing the law of God, the third use of the law, remember? If you are a believer, you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm caught in, in some covetous desire. What do I do? Well, there's the obvious, first of all. But you see, sin always obscures the obvious, doesn't it? We don't see straight when sin dominates, when sin preoccupies the heart. And so let me refresh your memory on the obvious, the means of grace. The Word of God read and preached. The sacraments, prayer, gathering together with the people of God in public, as well, of course, as your private worship. So the means of grace, confessing your sins, believing in Christ, repenting, which should be daily. We should be daily believing and repenting. It should be ongoing in the Christian life. And then the accountability that comes from being a part of the people of God. The Bible just doesn't know Christians that don't have that accountability. There's just nothing like that in the Bible. And then next, seek a Christ-centered heart within the context of the means of grace, but it must not be a half-hearted seeking of a Christ-centered heart. You must be full tilt in your desire for Christ and communion with Him and fellowship with Him and obedience with Him. When grace is in the heart, the heart fights. Grace produces effort. We fight the good fight of faith. So realize the opposite of a covetous heart is a Christ-centered heart heart. If you are overwhelmed with a covetous desire, then you are not Christ-centered in your heart. The Holy Spirit has given you the resources. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit enabled you through a new heart to understand and to draw upon the resurrection power of Christ as He rewrites the law of God into the heart of man. We have begun to be Christ-centered, which is the opposite of a covetous heart as believers. We begin to covet rightly, to covet communion with God and the life of faith. The divine prescription is found for us in Colossians chapter 3. So let's open our Bibles there. Colossians chapter 3. Now let me point out verse 5 to you. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3 verse 5, here the Apostle Paul says this is what Christians are to put to death, put off, and here are the things they are to put on. But notice verse 5, Colossians 3 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now notice, covetousness, the tenth commandment, is related to the first commandment. It is idolatry. This is what drives idolatry, a covetous heart. But the prescription that is given to the people of God to avoid that sin and to overcome it is found in the first four verses of Colossians 3. Let's look at it. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the prescription is, if you have been raised with Christ, seek. That's an active calling on your part, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on, are on the earth. Why? Because of the indicative. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and then the future must come into play. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's God's prescription. But there's more. You overcome covetousness by being content. Contentment. What one of the Puritans call the rare jewel of Christian contentment. The covetous man always wants more. David wanted Bathsheba. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. The man in Luke, greater substance and more barns, but not for the service of the Lord. So the person who sets his heart upon these world's goods Again, it is not wrong to have goods. It is not wrong to have nice things. I said the person who sets his heart upon the world's goods will never be a contented man, woman, or child. Philippians 4.12, Paul confesses, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 1 Timothy 6.17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. And so we're not called to be ascetics. Good gifts come from God. We are to enjoy those good gifts to his glory. But should the Lord reduce our circumstances, we have a heavenly home and our lives are not determined by things we possess. And let us not think that only rich people have the problem of covetousness. Every human heart by nature is covetous. So you say, how can I be content? The only way to be content with what you have, which is the opposite of covetousness, the only way to be content is if our hearts are elsewhere. The only way not to covet this world is to covet the next world. If your heart has been changed by grace, then you want to know and experience more of God's grace. Do you know what it means to covet grace, to long, to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn more and more, to find in Him your all in all? Those born again know this change and will begin to grow in it. Those who are not born again 
cannot grow in it because they don't even have a beginning. And so we do not give up. We do not forfeit our freedom in Christ. We will, we will not come again under the yoke of the slavery of covetousness. Exodus 20 began with a proclamation of redemption. I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because I have redeemed you, I give you this law. Because I have redeemed you, therefore, this is how I call upon you to live. And so there are prescriptions that can be given that will help us here. Again, I'm leaning on the Puritans at this point. The first, of course, is faith. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The root of covetousness is distrust of God's providence, says Thomas Watson. Do you understand that? The root of covetousness, if you covet things, it is because you're not trusting in the Lord to provide for you in his sovereignty those things that he wants you to have. Faith believes that God will provide. Faith is the cure of care. It not only purifies the heart, but satisfies it. It makes God our portion, and in him we have enough. But then we also should learn how to consider and meditate upon certain truths, such as the worth of the soul. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The vanity of the world, this passing world that's going to burn up in the end, and the judgment that is to come. The examples of Christians who have overcome this sin well. Philippians 3.20, our conversation is in heaven. The apostle about my lifestyle is in heaven, says Paul the apostle. And then we learn how to covet spiritual things. If we covet heaven more, we shall covet those things that pass away less. Again, the Puritan. To those who stand on the top of the Alps, the great cities of the Campania seem but as small villages. So if our hearts were more fixed upon the Jerusalem above, all worldly things would disappear, would diminish, and be as nothing in our eyes. Heaven's superlative glory should help us to trample underfoot inordinate desire for this world. It's almost a lost art learning how to meditate upon the world to come and upon heaven. Our fathers knew how to do it. It's almost a lost art. How to hold it in my hand, how to, to let it get into my heart. These things I would understand more readily if my, if my focus was upon my God, my Christ, who sits upon the throne in heaven. And so the ultimate remedy that results from these things is contentment. And so you open the mail and there's an advertisement. Probably uh, men need to be extremely careful with that, but women too. Uh, do you not realize that advertising is simply a mirror of what is in the human heart? So the temptation arises to want that woman or to want that man or to want the, that thing wrongly, inordinately. And I'm not suggesting that all advertising is wrong. Certainly not. If, you've, if you have a product and you can honestly put it out there for people, that's a good thing to do. 
But what does the Christian say with all of this advertising in our culture? Or since we have for years been desensitized by game shows that offer the possibility of great reward for nothing commensurate to the work done to obtain it, because we've all been vanitized, what do we do? Well, my God says that life is more than about consuming. I say to myself, it is about Him. I will not covet except the best things, the rightful coveting of Christ and His benefits, and I will put the good things of this world that He has given me in their rightful place, and I will not long for those things that are destructive of my relationship with Christ, that destroy the soul. Godliness with contentment is gain. I will develop good desires. It all comes down to what I keep saying to myself and continue to say to the congregation. Obsession with the Word of God. It all comes down to being obsessed with the Word of God. Read, lived upon, hearing it preached, taking it in my heart, taking it into my home. Are you obsessed with the Word of God? Some of you still don't believe me. I know you don't. But it all comes down to that. And so there's nothing wrong with improving your health or even, or even your body shape. But the question is why? For the glory of God or because you want that body that others have in those airbrush photos that are in the advertising? You see, I need to walk. I mean, literally, I need to walk. I need to get out and walk. So my, my wife is helping me here. It's something I need to do. Why do I need to walk? Well, because as we've discussed it, I'd like to live a little longer to preach more and to teach and to write in service to my Lord. And so I need cardiovascular exercise. Is that a good thing? Yeah. It's not in my life an inordinate desire, I will tell you. <laughs> but wanting to please the Lord, I hope, is more and more. So want the body the Lord has given you. Is there anything wrong with seeking a better job? No, not in and of itself. Not if it's done for the glory of God, but be content with God's provision. Now the ethicist Dalma has a good little paragraph, and this is what he says. Your own house is the best one for you. Your own spouse is the most pretty or handsome for you. In your own job lies the most fruitful development of your abilities. Even though your house may be smaller than your neighbors, though your wife may be less attractive than other women, though your job may rank lower on the scale of values than those of your friends and acquaintances, and so on. Now, that's a very good statement, isn't it? What God has given me in His grace is what is best for me. If he opens up other opportunities and, and I can improve, then that's good. That's not a bad thing. But why do I want it for the glory of God? And let me say something to you young men. This is kind of an aside, but I think it actually fits. And that is, um, I'm not suggesting that you marry a woman whose appearance is not in any way attractive to you. But don't put that first on the list. 
And some of the best wives that you will find, I mean, you can see that, that in, in many, many ways, many, many places, even in church history, some of the best wives that men have are, are women that the world may never consider to be attractive. But you know what happens is that over time when you're content and you really love your wife, that whether your wife already would be considered beautiful by others or whether she wouldn't, it really isn't the point because to you, to you, she's the most beautiful woman. And so that's going to be kind of important when you get old and, and you have uh, wrinkles that even a chain can't pull up. It's going to be pretty important <laughs> that you just love the woman because this is God's woman for you. So let us not desire something that goes beyond what God has said at the expense of our neighbor or the glory of God. Let us not rest until every Dagon is trampled in our lives. Fourth thing, our need of Christ, our need of Christ. Surely this commandment shows our need of Christ, how anyone can deny original sin. The corruption of our nature is just sheer blindness. But the Christian cries out, Cleanse me from secret faults. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The commandment calls for your whole heart, and no Christian can say that he obeys the law perfectly. But we can say this. Every Christian should say this. The law's curse has been removed because Jesus paid its penalty for me. The law was my enemy because God is holy and I am not, but now I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ received by faith. And also because of the new birth, I now am beginning more and more to desire to obey the Lord who bought me. My covenant God has set me free, and so there's no excuse for me to remain under the bondage of any sin and now I can begin to make real progress in obedience. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, none of these things is true of you. None of them. You are under the curse of the law. You are under his condemning wrath. You do not even have a start in these things. You may think you can obey God's law and be saved, but you don't understand the spirituality of the law. You cannot do it. But if you are a believer then I, I point you to Christ. If you are an unbeliever here today, I point you to Christ. And our culture, so antinomian, let's point our culture to Christ. Now, a fifth point, I want to sum up our series on the Ten Commandments this morning, in this point. As we come to this end of this series on the Ten Commandments, I have addressed primarily, though not exclusively, believers in the Lord Jesus. Now let me do so once again. People of God, times change, circumstances change, but God does not change and his moral law for his creatures does not change. I have met many an older person who has been willing to give up ethical stands for which they would have perhaps given their lives earlier because, ah, oh, times change. 
God's law does not change. John Murray points out that coming to Calvary does not diminish our esteem for the law of God. No. And he cites a, a quote that I've used many, many times in preaching because I've gotten it from Thornwell, not from, not from Murray. But the quote is this. He that stands beneath the cross and understands the scene dares not sin. Not because there is a hell beneath him or an angry God above him, but because holiness is felt to reign there. God never appears to be so truly great, so intensely holy, as when from the pure energy of principle, he gives himself in the person of his son to die, rather than that his character should be impugned. Who at the foot of Calvary can pronounce sin to be a slight matter? Murray rightly concludes that we do not come to Calvary to find the moral law abrogated, but to find, I quote Murray here, but to find it by the grace of God wrought in the very fiber of the new life in Christ Jesus. If the cross of Christ does not fulfill in us the passion of righteousness, we have misinterpreted the whole scheme of divine redemption. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8.3. Is that the moral law? Is it that the moral law might cease to bind and to regulate? Oh no. But Paul goes on to say that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. People of God, those who are in Christ will frame our lives after the moral law of God. Remember, the law drives us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us can enable us more and more to live obediently. And when you fail, you are not under God's condemning wrath. He pardons, he forgives, he loves his children. Keep moving, keep going. Continue to go to the gospel. Continue to look to the law so that you may honor the Lord who has redeemed you. Because saved people love God's law. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.